Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 232 of Yogaland. Today, my guest is Sarah Cadel. Sarah is a yoga teacher based in Austin, Texas, and she is also one of the mentors who is mentoring Jason's students in the online 300-hour teacher training modules this year. Sarah has been teaching since 2011, and she tells the story of how she was dragged to her first yoga class by a friend when she was unconsciously grappling with addiction. And so she was in a tough place in her life. She found yoga, and then she found a 200-hour training that was trauma-informed. So since then, she has learned a lot about trauma. She has processed her own trauma, and she leads trauma-informed yoga classes. So that's what we talk about today. I found the conversation to be incredibly helpful. I have, over the past several years, been reading some of the scientists studying trauma myself, like Stephen Porges, Stephen Levine. It was interesting for me to hear how Sarah ties together yoga asana and yoga philosophy with this more modern research and neurobiology information that that is really just coming to light. She also offers some really helpful frameworks and tips for incorporating trauma-informed approach into your own classes. So I think you will find this episode both informative and inspiring. Sarah offers online classes as well, and she's leading a 200-hour teacher training. That's There's both a hybrid option and an in-person option, and I'm going to toot her own horn for her because she didn't in the episode. So I will put the URL for her website in the show notes, and you can go find out more about Sarah and how you can study with her. And if you are interested in Jason's online trainings this year, there's still two modules that you could sign up for. He's teaching module three at the end of May, and module one is being repeated again this summer in August. And then, of course, he will offer all three modules again next year. So you can go to our website and learn more about that, jasonyoga.com. Enjoy the interview with Sarah. Well, Sarah, thanks so much for being here today. I am looking forward to getting to know you a little better. Thanks for having me, Andrea. I'm really excited to be here and feel really grateful about it. I have been a longtime listener and fan and yeah, it just, it feels really good to be here with you. Well, we, so I'm obviously going to say this in the intro as well, but we are fortunate to have you as one of the student mentors for Jason's online teacher training this year. And you just wrapped up being a a mentor for module one. How was that for you? I really love mentoring other teachers. I think that especially now in the um, very isolated environment that we've found ourselves with the majority of studios being closed and us teaching from our homes or, you know, teaching online, we're missing that, that element of, you know, being with our peers and finding that, that mutual inspiration and, you know, challenging each other and, all of the ways that we can challenge each other, you know, professionally, personally, and, you know, the mentorship really provided space for that, for that connection, for the sharing of ideas, the, the commiserating of challenges and, you know, just working through the humanness that comes along with, you know, sharing yoga as, as your profession. (laughs) That's so nice. I'm really happy to hear that. And I know that Chelsea, who helps Jason and I in myriad ways that she she checked in with you all and she said the same thing. And I'm I'm just so glad that you all have been available and that Jason thought of it because I think that 
for the online training, he's offering so much like data, you know, and, and information and people are trying to digest it. And then because he's not in the room with people, it's like, I think some processing needs to happen too. And he he's just one guy, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's really nice that he's got that you, you all are there as, as yourselves and providing the type of support that is just most in line with your personality and your unique characteristics, you know? It's been a, a true honor, honestly. I'm, I'm so happy to have been a part of it. Oh, good, good. Well, let's get into you a little bit. You were just kind enough to share with me your story of finding yoga. And I think it'll be so helpful for people to hear because I think we often put each other on a pedestal and think that everyone's got it all figured out. And, you know, you, you came to yoga and when you were, your life was in a different, difficult place. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Interestingly enough, I found the the philosophy of yoga way before I found the, the physical components of the practice. And I was fascinated with Vedic philosophy and ancient texts when I was in high school, which I feel like is kind of a strange thing, but it all started when I was visiting my family in San Diego and I was handed at the airport one of the self-realization books from the, the self-realization fellowship folks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I thought that was like the coolest thing. I was like, wow, this book is like really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and so that kind of just like sent me off on this path of being very curious and inquisitive when it came to um to Eastern thought. And perhaps it was just a form of rebellion since I grew up in Catholic school. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I loved it and I fell in love with the teachings and studied it in college even. And then it wasn't until I was living in the Virgin Islands, uh, St. Thomas, for folks that might have visited there on a cruise ship, maybe, (laughs) um, (laughs) that I found the physical practice. And I was quite literally dragged to my first yoga practice, my first class. And it was at a, a resort and it was gym yoga, you know, nothing that we, we think of now in our studios. I was extremely hungover from what was probably a long binge, which was my my typical, my baseline at the time was binging for five days or so. And then, you know, resurfacing from, from that experience and feeling a lot of self-loathing and quite physically ill. Mm. And, you know, in, in the addiction, I, I was un, unable to help myself. And my, my friends witnessed this unraveling of mm. me. And, you know, said, hey, how about we try this yoga class just as a way to, you know, try and get things moving or, you know, just to try something different. And so I remember I dragged myself out of bed. It was miserable. I felt horrible. I was so hungover. And I went to this yoga practice and I felt so dissociated from my body. I mean, the very first, I'll never forget the feeling of my very first downward facing dog. And I was like, what is this torture? (laughs) And why would I willingly put myself through this? Like it was, it was horrible for me. And, um, I just felt so disconnected and out of place and couldn't get the breath right. And, you know, my hamstrings were so tight and my shoulders were locked up and like, I just, it was awful. My balance was off. You know, I was nauseous. It was just, it was a mess. Mm -hmm. But at the end in Shavasana, there was a very distinct moment of me sort of just being like, huh there is, there's something going on here. And I wasn't really able to put words to it then. 
and even now it's a little bit difficult. It's one of one of those things where it's it's such a intrinsic feeling that it's hard to express in words. But I knew that in that moment there was a different possibility for me that there was another path that I didn't have to live in this place of of constant cyclical depression and self-abuse and codependency and you know all of the all of the things that come along with with addiction. Yeah. And it took me a long time to really investigate that feeling more, but it, it, the seed was planted. The seed yeah. was planted then. And um, I went back once in a while, you know, it started like, you know, maybe a few times a month and then it started turning into, you know, once a week and then twice a week and things just sort of picked up. And, you know, I've, I've heard this story so many times, especially in the um, the recovery community around yoga, where it's almost like yoga starts to excavate these things within you. And at some point, it's almost like if you allow yourself to be swept up in it, it's almost like you're, you're moving automatically in the direction of healing and connection. Like it's the, the practice is so powerful that like you actually have to, I feel like get in your own way to prevent it from, from doing what it does. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I, I just started practicing more and more and you know, slowly I was practicing more. And so I didn't want to necessarily be hung over because I had this mm. class that I was, I was dedicated to. And so my instances of binging got shorter and, you know, less frequent. Mm-hmm. And so things just started shifting without me consciously being like, you know, I have a, a problem with alcohol. I need to do these steps or this recovery, or I need to put myself in rehab. Like it was a very different recovery process for me. It was mm. very slow. <laughs> I'm a slow learner, I guess, when it comes to these things. And it took years, honestly. But it was those experiences at the very beginning where I started to uncover some, you know, some shadows of myself that were deeply uncomfortable, but I didn't turn away. I stuck with it. And the rewards were obviously worth it. The the benefit was outweighing the discomfort. And that's what kind of, you know, got me into wanting to share it with others. I how can you keep something that powerful that's provided so much deep personal transformation? How can you keep that to yourself? So mm-hmm. I ended up in teacher training while I was still living in the Virgin Islands um, with my first teacher down there. And uh, yeah, that was yeah. back in 2011. You have such amazing friends that they, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that they they were able to recognize and try to steer you into a healthier way to place your energy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, did you feel like, was there ever a point where you were like, oh, and you, you kind of had a light bulb moment and you realized you were sort of in recovery at that point that you could recognize like that was an addiction and, and I'm not there anymore. Yes. So I've only, I've only stopped drinking. I've only been sober for, well, I shouldn't say only because it's, it's a, it's a big feat for me for two and a half years now. Uh-huh. And, you know, it was, like I said, a very slow, gradual process for, for my own personal recovery. Mm-hmm. And I've discovered in that, that, you know, not, there's no one way to recover, you know, it's whatever, whatever works for the individual. You know, it was this moment of realizing, talking to another dear friend that, is in the recovery world as well and in recovery herself where we were just having a chat it was it was a pre retreat we were leading a retreat together in bali and we were just chatting and i said to her you know 
I, I just can't shake this feeling that, you know, I have a problem with drinking. I just can't shake this feeling. And I, I'm always curious why everyone else can drink and they, and they, they don't seem to be constantly obsessing over the fact or the questioning of, do I have a problem? Hmm. And she just looked me dead in the eye and was like, that's because you have an addiction. And I was like, what do you mean? She's like, people without addiction don't constantly wonder if they're addicted. And it was hmm. like this moment of like, huh, yeah. <laughs> wow, I didn't realize that. And, you know, I, I've, I knew that, but it was just her putting the pieces together for me. And in that moment, like I was like, okay, I guess I was looking for some sort of confirmation or validation from mm-hmm. outside, which is not, you know, typical for me. Usually I, I really operate from like my internal power, but I needed that like outside validation of like, yeah, you're onto something. Something's not right. And mm-hmm. you need some resources and some support to, to get you to where you want to go. And I was just like, wow, okay. And in that moment, there was so much freedom because mm-hmm. I feel like I had been avoiding it. And, you know, perhaps it was from growing up in a family surrounded by alcoholism that I was so afraid to attach myself to that identity. And I still don't really attach to that identity because it's, it's just such a small part of who I am. Mm -hmm. But I I do talk very openly about, you know, recovery and, you know, these tools and these methods that have, have worked for me. Yeah. Um, Yeah. (laughs) When did you, so do you think it was this process of healing or, or recovery or whatever you want to call it that led you to start learning about trauma informed yoga? Oh, absolutely. And you know, it's one of these things of like, what came first? I'm not quite sure, but uh-huh. <laughs> um, my, my very first yoga teacher training back in 2011 was trauma-informed. Oh, and wow. That didn't, That's that didn't awesome. mean anything to me then. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, as, I, as I've moved through this, you know, this environment, this, this yoga world, I um, have discovered like, oh, wow, all those tools that I, I learned back then, like, I'm putting a name to them now. Like they weren't necessarily called these things, you know, learning about like, say the polyvagal theory from Dr. Porges and the polyvagal. Yeah. And and I've done some webinars and things with him and um, Dr. Peter Levine with somatic uh, experiencing. When I learned about those things, I was able to piece together the personal transformation I experienced through yoga by being like, Oh, that's why that worked. Like now I understand the science behind it. So yeah, I think that it was like a simultaneous, like parallel <laughs> learning of the, the trauma and yoga of how it worked within my body, but then also being curious about how do I, how do I label these things? How do I understand the why behind them, the science behind them so that then I can share these tools with others? Mm, yeah. So I'm just going to veer off for just a moment to Stephen yeah. Porges and say, you know, just the small amount of time that I've spent reading his work and watching his videos completely changed my parenting because, mm-hmm. and I'm just sharing this in case it's helpful to anyone. When Sophia was in first grade, she started to have pretty extreme school refusal and she would just cry. I mean, every single day as we were taking her to school, as we're getting her ready at school, it was so sad and so horrifying. And, you know, you think about a six-year-old child who's like in a small environment, loving relationship with their family. It was so puzzling to me and, and scary, you know, because I couldn't figure out what was wrong. 
I somehow discovered him and he talks about, you know, we've all learned about fight or flight, but she wasn't fighting or fleeing, right? She was just completely shutting down. Right. She was just in complete shutdown. And so obviously I did all the things that parents do. I like, we set up OT and we set up evaluations and things like that. And those were all very important. But at the end of that school year, I just said to myself, this child can't handle anything right now. Like she needs to do whatever she wants for this entire summer. And it was a really hard decision as a parent because like I enjoy my work and I always thought I would be working and just, I envisioned myself, you know, (laughs) my life very differently. And uh, so I just pretty much took the summer off, took her to her, my in-laws house in Ohio, Jason had to travel a bit and he would kind of come back and forth and just let her kind of tootle around all summer. She did do some OT, but, and she was like a different little person. And that, I don't know, just that window into, for some of us, you know, there's fight or flight for some of us. And especially like, if you think of a really young system, it's just like, nope, not going to do it. Just the the complete shutdown. Um, yeah. Self-preservation shutdown and mobilization. And yeah, I think that learning about polyvagal theory was so profound for me because like you said before, we, we basically only considered like, oh, if you're feeling this, you know, this overwhelm, then it's, you know, your sympathetic nervous system. That's the problem. But what polyvagal theory is showing us is that actually it's the parasympathetic moving over into the dorsal vagus side. That's, that's, causing us to shut down. And it's not because of a lack of, you know, mental fortitude or resiliency. It's a, it's a literal evolutionary mechanism that's evolved within us. And so it's like, what, what can we do to, to create more safety and reduce that the sense of danger or threat so that we can better understand ourselves and connect with ourselves and connect with others. And it was really profound for me to, to learn about polyvagal theory because I I hadn't ever heard of it before. Yeah. I hope that these researchers who are working on all of this are going to profoundly change the way that we raise our kids and the way that we teach our kids. We're sort of like inching there little by little, but there's just so much wisdom there. For some little kids, like for Sophia, she perceives demands that she, like a quote unquote demand, let's say is like, go write your name and fill out this worksheet right at school. To her, that's like too much of a demand because she thinks she can't get it perfectly. So she shuts down. Right. Right. So she doesn't feel safe. So just having that knowledge, I think could change so many little people's lives. Hopefully that's what I tell myself anyway. I was just going to say, you know, in polyvagal theory also suggests that in order to, to access those higher brain structures that enable, you know, learning and creativity and productivity, we, we need to, we need to feel safe. Mm. And so like feeling unsafe is costing us not only connection with others, but our, our human potential. And like, I, I just think about right now in COVID where there's almost this this expectation, at least in the yoga world where it's like, Oh, you should have your, your whole online world set up and this and that. And it's like, well, hold on a minute. Like we're going through a collective traumatic experience with like tons of stress. Like we're not in a place where, you know, creativity and uh, productivity is, is supported. (laughs) Yeah, completely, completely. 
you know, when I say, I hope that these researchers are profoundly changing things, you know, it makes me think of teachers like you too, who are incorporating this type of learning and knowledge into your teaching. So let's just back way out for a moment for people who are not as familiar and, and talk about, if you could tell me what you think of as the definition of, of trauma-informed yoga. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like even backing up even more than that, like, you know, what, it, what is trauma, especially since it's, it's a word I feel like that is thrown a lot around pretty loosely. When I think of trauma, I'm really referring to like the, the complex and varied symptoms that people might suffer as a result of either a real or perceived life-threatening or overwhelming experience. And like that piece of real or perceived is really important because it doesn't actually matter if, if it's a real situation. If it's, if it's perceived by our system to be a threat or overwhelming, then it is. And the way that we become traumatized uh, is when our ability to respond or cope and metabolize the process or the, the, you know, the threat, our response to the threat is inadequate. And that's where sometimes that immobilization can kick in the dissociation where, you know, the, the hormones of cortisol and adrenaline aren't able to be discharged. And so if we're not able to efficiently metabolize our, our trauma responses, the brain doesn't really understand that it's time to, to reduce those levels of stress hormone and to, to normalize they, the brain doesn't understand that the threat is gone and that we're safe. Mm-hmm. And so if we're not able to regulate the nervous system, that residual energy has to go somewhere. And often it's stored in the nervous system. And this is really what sets the stage for, you know, the formation of different traumas and how, how they're, they express in our bodies. And, you know, we, we also talked about, you know, that, that wonderful book of the body keeps the score in this real idea that these these memories are stored in our physical bodies and how that then impacts our minds and our and our emotions our ability to to be out in the world right and so when we're looking at trauma informed yoga it's important to understand that reactions will range in severity and there might be acute responses there might be responses that pop up immediately maybe a few months or years down the road and it's really about supporting the individual how do we give them tools for regulation and how do we collaborate with them to bring them back into a place or for them to bring themselves back? You know, we're just there to, to guide. How do we help them to guide themselves back into a place of equilibrium? You know, when we look at trauma as like a loss of connection, whether it's to ourselves, our bodies, to others, our world, and we think about yoga as connection and mm. self-inquiry it seems just like the perfect complement. It's this intersection of, of yoga and and trauma recovery. I think it just goes so beautifully together. Hmm. That's so true. Do you teach classes specifically or workshops specifically for people who are wanting to cope with their trauma and heal their trauma through yoga? Or is it something that you incorporate into every class? So it's definitely incorporated into every single class. And I, I'd love to like go over some, you know, some tips and some things that can be shifted or some considerations. So all of my classes I consider to be trauma-informed. I teach trauma-informed workshops for teachers, but I haven't actually done any for students. And that's a really good idea, Andrea. Thank you. <laughs> so when I consider how trauma impacts students, I want to 
think about how to responsibly hold space for them. And it's really about looking at the whole student beyond just the physical and to prioritize the complexities that come with, you know, with being human. And we, when we think about like, oh, is this like a, a new thing? Like so much trauma-informed yoga is popping up all over the place now. And I think it's so important to, to realize that this approach is so ancient. Like the Upanishads laid all of this holistic perspective out with the, with Panchamaya or, you know, the Panchakosha model, looking at the human being as a, a multidimensional being where it's right. not just the physical body, right? And so that's really the the lens that I am approaching trauma-informed yoga. It's that, you know, yes, there's a physical body and it's going to be our vehicle to get to these other aspects of ourselves, but how do we address the mind and the heart and, you know, our our personalities, our intellect, things like that? How do we engage these different elements? And so for me, it's really about, you know, supporting students to release that traumatic imprint trapped in the body. And to empower survivors of trauma to, to heal through the physical and, you know, spiritual mindful practices of yoga in hopes that like, you know, they're also using complementary uh, modalities and, and therapies and things like that. I think it's a really great tool, but some things that I, I consider and I, I teach in my, my workshops and teacher trainings, you know, is to sequence in a way that's going to stimulate the nervous system response in the practice with the intention of ending with a slight parasympathetic dominance. And so some ways that can, we can do this is by offering up opportunities for folks to, to feel a bit of nervousness. Maybe it's a balancing pose or an arm balance where there's you know, a fear fear impulse or you know something that kind of gets our nervous system, our heart rate going, our breath might tighten a little bit. And how do we, how do we instigate that sympathetic nervous system response in a really safe way and then show them that they're able to come out of it so that we're building up resiliency in the nervous system and strengthening vagal tone, which is essentially just training our nervous system. It's, you know, we can look at it as just another layer of not only training our bodies, but training, you know, the nervous system as well. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and there's so many ways that that can be done, right? And th- these are just some some tools that I use. You know, another is really important concept is to create a container. And uh, I find that introducing myself before each class is really important so that, you know, folks know who I am. And I'm also explicitly clear about my expectations of the student at the at the very beginning of class. So, you know, I might say something like, this is your practice and you can choose to do what's best for you at all times. And my, my favorite thing to say is like, you don't need my permission to do anything. Like take rest. If your body is asking for rest, if your body is asking for harder work, then, you know, give yourself some more effort. Like you don't need my permission. I'm here to hold, you know, to guide you and to, to offer up what I have, but like, ultimately like you're, you're in charge here. <laughs> And I think that this is super important because it's creating opportunities for choice. And very often in traumatic events and experiences, folks feel like they've lost that power, that autonomy uh, to choose what's best for them. And so this is just reinforcing like, hey, you're, you're in charge here and I'm going to affirm whatever choices you make and know that you know what's best for you. Mm-hmm. Are you explicit in terms of talking about that you're introducing these techniques to help people cope with their trauma? Or is it just sort of like you weave it into class and 
and they're getting it just through experiential ways. Yeah. So sometimes I'm explicit. For example, if I am teaching maybe alternate nostril breathing or Nadi Shodan, I might well, not, not my, I always explain like, why are we doing this? What's the point of it? And the ideal outcome of, you know, breathing in those asymmetrical ways, uh, what that might be. So like increased heart rate variability, helping the parasympathetic and sympathetic better communicate, you know, just telling them about the integration of the left and right hemisphere of the brain through these cross-lateral movements or breathing or whatever it is that I might be introducing. I might just like quickly explain that, but I hardly ever say, you know, this is a trauma-informed practice. And I guess I haven't really put much thought into that, but you know, the reason is that I'm not trying to really call anyone out or, or name them or label them. And if This isn't something that is exclusively for folks that have experienced trauma or have a clinical diagnosis of PTSD. I think that everyone can benefit from from these practices. And so I hardly explicitly say, you know, this is a trauma-informed practice and here's Uh why. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of my favorite ways to to create an experience for folks to to have that that container, that space of, of freedom to explore, you know, making choices that are right for them is by using supportive and empowering language. So like invitational language, like I, I'll give an example of, I might say at the beginning, you know, leave your eyes open if that feels best. If it feels good to close your eyes, close your eyes. Something as simple as giving them the option to keep their eyes open or closed rather than saying, close your eyes. And that reminds me of what you just shared with Sophia, right? Instead mm-hmm. of giving it a command or an order, I, I, I leave it open. Like mm-hmm. here are the options. And same thing for Shavasana, right? So like sometimes laying on, on your back might not be the ideal situation, whether you're feeling, you know, truly uncomfortable in your physical body or because there's a trauma response going on and you feel vulnerable laying on the floor like that. And so in Shavasana, I always say, if you want to take Shavasana on your back, get comfortable. And if you prefer your side, your belly or seated upright or anything else, give yourself permission to go there, like choose what's best for you in this moment. So just simple things like that of giving the opportunity of creating space for folks to practice autonomy Mm -hmm. and them when they make those choices for themselves. I think that can just be so powerful. It's true. And I think like, Getting to know yourself. So for example, someone might do Shavasana with their eyes closed, laying down all the time. And they might always have some kind of low level feeling of anxiety. Like, why can't I relax? Everyone else is so relaxed. Why isn't this relaxing for me? But then giving them a different choice allows them to experiment with that and then say to themselves, huh, wow. Okay. I feel much better when I keep my eyes open. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And then eventually they might know that, that they feel safer when they keep their eyes open and they feel more, you know, that they're just better able to relax in that moment. And then they can make those choices for themselves. Absolutely. And it's also building up that, you know, that culture of consent that is often lost in places of events of trauma, right? It's like, you're getting to choose what's best for you. And I'm, you know, we're building this relationship of trust with each other, but you're also building that relationship of trust with yourself. Mm, Yeah, that's so true. That's really true. Yeah. And then consent is like the other big one, obviously, you know, for trauma-informed classes, which is what I consider I, I pretty much only teach. 
in general public classes, I, I don't put my hands on folks for, you know, assists. And there's a lot of reasons behind that, but, you know, mostly it's, it's empowering folks to, to move their own bodies rather than me moving them. And so often I'll use uh, directional assists. Like I might ask them to reach towards my hand. Like I'll just give, and I won't actually touch them, but I'll hold my hand out in front of them and say, you know, reach towards my hand rather than moving their body. So they have that opportunity to, to move their own bodies. But if I am going to touch someone, especially in like a workshop setting, if I, you know, if, if it's like more appropriate setting, I always explicitly ask for permission and provide an opportunity for them to say no. So uh, in the moment too. So like in the moment, I might go up to someone and say, would it be okay if I put my hand on your shoulder and give them the opportunity to say yes or no? And that's also kind of, you know, tricky because folks might feel like a power dynamic and not want to say no. So I usually just err on the side of caution and don't put my hands on folks because I can usually use my words to, to direct them where I'm, I'm hoping them to, to go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Jason, you, as you know, has so much to say about mm-hmm. like changing the the changing landscape of of putting your hands on people, and yes, that that totally makes sense. So that for you, then that avoids. Do you avoid then asking the question of Is it okay if I touch you because you're not really touching them, right? Yeah. So I don't need to ask permission for for touching them because I'm not touching anyone. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. These are all such great things for people to think about. And I just want to go back for a moment because I'm so impressed that you, that teacher training you did, sounds like it was almost 10 years ago. Yeah. Had these principles. Did the teacher of that training introduce these concepts as trauma informed or did you just kind of put it together? So I remember there being a very, this was so long ago and I I was still. I was still very heavily abusing myself with substances. So the memory is not so great back then. Mm-hmm. But I do remember a conversation about, you know, you don't ever have to worry about being trauma-informed because the system you're learning mm-hmm. is already trauma-informed. Mm-hmm. And I just like, I, I didn't think anything of it. Like, I was just like, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> yeah. So do you feel like, I, I guess I do hear about trauma-informed yoga and trainings and all of these things often now. Mm -hmm. So do you recommend that that's something that people seek out? And if so, what should they look for in, in that kind of teaching or that kind of trainer? Or did you kind of piece it together through your own research and experimenting within the classroom? And you think that's kind of a quote unquote better way to go? Um, I think that there's a lot of value in, in training with someone and, you know, off the mat, they, they've been doing this work for longer than I've been teaching. And, um, you know, I still continue to do continuing education. I just finished up a, a week long mini webinar with Hala Curry, Mm. um, because I think it's important to, to hear how other professionals in, in the same, you know, specialization are approaching the subject and how they're organizing their information as well. And I mentioned, you know, I've done, you know, different online courses as well with Dr. Levine and Dr. Porges and, you know, I have all of their books. And recently I've been, you know, diving a little bit deeper into racialized trauma and reading uh, Resma, 
uh, Resma Menachem's book, uh, My Grandmother's Hands, mm-hmm. really recommending folks that want to be in the trauma-informed world to be there as well. I, I think that it's really, there's a lot of value in learning about the neurobiology of trauma and how it affects our system because there's something powerful about understanding the why behind it all and the science behind it all. So that when you're sharing these tools and this information with others, you feel confident as, mm-hmm. as a teacher, but also your, your, that confidence will be conveyed to your students and they'll, they'll trust you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. I, I think that it's, it's important and it seems like more and more teacher trainings are bringing in either specialists or having like little segments or at least including a book. I've heard so many teacher trainings are including, um, you know, the body keeps the score now. And that makes me so happy. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) And I I think it's, it's valuable. Like we mentioned uh, before, or maybe when we were just chatting before the, the recording was, you know, after this collective experience of trauma, we're living through COVID and being constantly inundated with the numbers and the death toll and the fear and the isolation. It's safe to say that we are all dealing with some level of intense, prolonged stress. Mm-hmm. Now, whether or not that manifests into actual trauma when you know we're not able to process it, you know, that that's up to the individual. But we can all benefit from from these techniques, from these tools, and these very subtle shifts that you know teachers can make in their languaging and how they're showing up for their students and holding space. That it's going to benefit everybody. You know, it doesn't have to be just a trauma impacted uh, demographic or population. Like we all benefit from from these techniques. Yeah, I mean, what I'm hearing you say is obviously that the things that you learn by learning the system of yoga and the tradition tradition of yoga and the holistic approach of yoga set the foundation for for a trauma-informed teaching or practice. But layering on the the research that's been done in the past 10 to 15 years, the neurobiology aspect and the all the nervous system research and layering that together with the system is really what creates trauma-informed yoga and makes yoga just that much more powerful and relevant for for today and for what we're all going through. Yeah. 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 And I I really think that yoga innately in its, you know, in its pure, (laughs) pure form is already trauma-informed. You know, as I mentioned that the ancient wisdom coming out of the Upanishads really laid it out already. And, you know, we just need to assess how are we showing up for our students and are we potentially triggering them and, you know, learning from that, you know, we'll make mistakes. I'm certain I've triggered folks and learning from that. And then, you know, going back to the drawing board, like, okay, or reaching out to colleagues or folks that, you know, are specialized in, in this, you know, modality and understanding like, okay, what, what did I do? Like, was it too much, too fast? You know, was it too intense? Did I say something? Is it my own, you know, my presence alone that is, is triggering, like starting to do some, some self-inquiry about that and just being open to the evolution of our own teaching of, you know, not taking things personally, staying in a self-regulated place as well, so that we're not, you know, going, going off the deep end with folks if they start going as well and just staying really grounded in our own teaching and stay educated, like just keep learning about it all. And, you know, it, I don't think it needs to be complicated. It's, 
it's an accessible way to, to make yoga more supportive and allow for greater healing, I believe. Mm -hmm. I, I kind of feel like I have to go here because I, I, and I don't want to end on this note, but, um, you know, there are just so many systems of yoga that have been manipulative and abusive. And we find that out more and more every day. So I guess part of me feels a certain amount of concern that if someone has been through trauma and knows that they want to heal or, or, you know, is really looking for a teacher who can offer this kind of approach, you know, what are some things that they would potentially want to avoid in a, in a teacher? Let's say like there is a trauma informed teacher who just isn't necessarily doing it for all the right reasons. Like, how do you think that that would present in a way that a student should know, okay, I need to stay away from this person. Yeah. And I wish I could give like a pep talk to, to every single student before yoga and just say, if something feels off, it's probably off. Mm -hmm. and that's not the teacher for you. Just, just learning to trust those instincts. And that's, what's, you know, so scary about folks that have endured trauma. It impacts our instincts. And so we, we might feel like a betrayal of our body and not trust when something feels off. Mm -hmm. It's so important to, you know, to discern when we're in that space, when we're, when we're allowing a teacher to guide us, like there needs to be some sort of discernment of, you know, is this the right teacher for me? Does this mm -hmm. feel good? Is this like making me feel a little bit off or do I feel unsettled or what's going on? You know, I've had a personal experience with abusive and predatory teachers. And so I'm, I feel very protective mm -hmm. of students and it just, it, of course, it, you know, it upsets everybody in the community when, you know, we hear of abuses and that it's a very real concern. Like, you know, as you've mentioned, like things are shifting and changing and maybe trauma is like this new buzzword that, you know, oh, I'm a trauma-informed yoga. Okay. Well, what's your experience in that? What's your education? What's your training? Mm -hmm. And those are some things that students can look out for. And I would even recommend, you know, if someone's really working through a traumatic experience, look for a yoga therapist that's been trained in somatic experiencing or look for, you know, someone that's been trained under Gary Craftsow in um, Vinny Yoga, you know, all of these different modalities that are specifically about healing trauma or working through trauma. That's, that's a good place to start. And then interview your teachers, like, heck, like this is an important relationship. You're spending a lot of time and money with them probably. And so ask like, what are your boundaries? Make those clear. I don't want to be touched. Or if you do want to touch me, I need to know that you're going to do it or, you know, whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. Music is upsetting to me, or I need to have the door open or the door closed. You know, there's all these different things that we can do to make our students feel safer and you know, more supported and like that we're actually listening and caring about them as individuals. And they're, they're, they're so small for us as the teacher to provide that for them. So I think communicating boundaries for students that are interested in seeking out a teacher to help them with trauma, just check out their story, ask them questions and see if they're willing to, you know, to meet you where you're at. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, and I think any teacher who is the right teacher for you won't be defensive or offended or anything by those types of questions, right? Like if they kind of brush your question off or 
respond in such a way that makes you feel like you shouldn't have asked the question. Right. That's not the right kind of teacher. I would say two things that stand out for me in terms of what kind of can happen in the yoga world is I would say any kind of teacher or or therapist or anything who kind of pushes you too far, too fast in a way that feels uncomfortable to you and sort of promises you that this is going to be a breakthrough or that they're going to heal you, that that's a pretty big sign that they're full of shit, quite frankly, (laughs) because this should be something that, as I think you mentioned earlier, like really should be you're guiding yourself, you know, they're guiding you, but you are leading yourself to a place of healing. And so you can go at your own pace. Absolutely. And then another thing that comes up for me is kind of the, the, the love bomb teacher, right? Yeah. Someone who recognizes that you're vulnerable and you need to feel seen and loved and accepted because you are sort of perhaps not feeling that way about yourself. And so any teacher who you feel is sort of singling you out with love and attention or that if, yeah, if it just feels like this is sort of too good to be true, then that might actually be the case that they're sort of taking advantage of your vulnerability. Absolutely. Um, And that reminds me too, of just like toxic positivity. Like you want to find a teacher that's going to be okay if you break down in tears Mm -hmm. (laughs) and not try and like, you know, shuffle you out of the room or, you know, make your experience stop because they're uncomfortable with your emotional expression. Like there's such like an aversion to being uncomfortable, just being human beings. And when we see other people being, you know, what we perceive as uncomfortable, we want to stop it, you know? Yeah. (laughs) You got to let folks have their process. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was just listening to Jack Cornfield and he said something like, so often when someone else cries, our natural instinct is to look away. Yes. Which is so, oh man, if we only knew that, you know, just actively listening and being there for someone is often what they really need and maybe even perhaps all they need yeah. <laughs> in that moment. Yeah. We could, we could help each other so much. Absolutely. You know, and you, you said some things that too, that reminded me you know, what you said about a teacher that might be trying to push you too much, too fast and telling you like, yeah, that's what you need. You know, that, that is something that is actually really common and very upsetting when I, when I hear about it from other students or other teachers that have experienced it in, you know, circles. And there's actually a concept in, you know, somatic experiencing called titration where it's less is more and slower is better when working with trauma. Like we, we want to slow things down Mm. and, take our time to, to feel and explore sensations and movements one piece at a time. So it might look like lots and lots of pausing and taking time to, to notice those things. And too much feeling can be too intense. If, if we're, we've dissociated from our bodies, stepping back into our bodies can be a really scary experience. So it's like, if, if someone is telling you that they're, they're experiencing too much or it's uncomfortable or it's painful, like, listen to them. And I think that's mm-hmm. one of the main things too, that we need to try to remind ourselves as teachers is like, as much as we know, we still don't know what's best for our te- our students. They are the only ones that know what is best for them. Hmm. That's so powerful. That's really true. And I think, yeah, I mean, just if we all respected each other's instincts and boundaries that way, we would have a lot more of us walking around trusting ourselves and feeling good about our, (laughs) our choices and our ability to take care of ourselves. You know, I think that's the other thing that can happen with trauma is because like you said, you can 
you sort of stop trusting your instincts or you, you and so you you start to believe that you don't have the answers for yourself. Right. And I think that's where like the fear really gets embedded. Like if I don't know what to do, what am I going to do? But empowering people to that they do know. It's just that maybe it hasn't been respected yet. Is Yeah, absolutely. Huge. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. I just, I really enjoyed, I feel like this is just the tip of the iceberg, but I'm so happy that you came on and that you shared this with us because I know that it's really important work and I'm, I'm glad you're out there doing it and I'm, I'm glad others are. And I just encourage everyone to, I don't know, just to, like you said, just to educate yourself and to know that there are spaces where you can, and where you can feel safe. Absolutely. Thanks, Sarah. Well, thank you so much, Andrea. Thanks so much for listening. I will put links on the show notes page to the books that Sarah mentioned, including a book by Stephen Porges and The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. So you can check those out at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 232. If you enjoyed this episode and found it helpful to you, please feel free to share it on social media, to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Always super helpful. Helps other people to find the podcast. Also, don't forget to subscribe and go to our website, jasonyoga.com and sign up for our newsletter. I typically, typically weekly let you know when a new episode is out. Okay, everyone. Until next week, enjoy your practice.